On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Tabitha. And Tabitha was in an abusive relationship with a controlling predator. It's a story of abusing authority, intimate partner violence, isolation, and the kindness of strangers. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. And this is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick. My friends call me Chad. And thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. That simple. And now, if you have not been to our website recently, please do go there if you want to be part of our show. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com and fill out the guest form, and we will go from there. Where's the guest form, actually? Well, it's at the top of the page. You click it, then you fill out the guest form, and then we'll go from there. But another way to be part of our show is to also be on our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode. And you can go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, same website as before. And to read a letter to your narcissist and be part of that episode, there's a floating button on the side of the page. It says, send voicemail. Press that button, records up to five minutes. Press it twice, records up to 10 minutes. Three times, 15 minutes, we're, we're accumulating letters for a volume six of my letters to my narcissist compilation episode. And if you don't want to read the letter yourself and you want myself or my old pal, Melissa, to read the letter for you, please do send a, an email NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put letters to my narcissist in the subject line. And now, what else do we have for you? Uh, we have a Patreon, everyone. Do you want to support our show? Do you? Join our Patreon. On our Patreon, we have episodes that never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests, and much more. That much more. We are now offering virtual support groups on there. We've got a great group of people on there. We hang out on Wednesdays and Saturday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, sometimes we have an art night. That's this week we're doing an art night. But we do, we chat with each other. We support each other. It's a great group. And we also have our own private uh, forum as well where we can chat with each other. It's private. It's not on Facebook. It's on my own website. And you can hang out there. It's a great group of people, a lot of support. It's only five bucks a month. And you can pay up to 30 bucks a month to help the people who are on the low-end scale that can't afford uh, more than that. So help support the show, you know, support everyone, join our Patreon, become a patron, and I hope to see you there. And now before we get to our show here with Tabitha, I just want to say that this episode has some parts that are quieted out. I didn't want to trigger anyone, so I made sure on specific types of language. Or if I thought the description of the abuse, uh, the physical abuse was uh, too much, I quieted down so you couldn't hear it. Um, and what else about the show? Tabitha, thank you very much for being part of the show. She did a really good job. The sound uh, was a little muffled. I did my best to kind of get it up to where it is. So hopefully people won't be annoyed with that. 
because sometimes you don't know about connections uh, with going through computers and phones and things like that. So besides that, I hope everyone uh, enjoys the show. This is a really interesting uh, episode. This is a real wolf in sheep's clothing episode where you know, this guy was presenting himself in one way uh, for everyone else to see. And you'll hear, I'm not going to ruin it. I'll stop right now. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode with Tabitha. I hope you learn a lot and you know, I hope you all have a good day. And without further ado, here is my episode with Tabitha. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Tabitha. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. And, you know, lately I've been getting a lot of emails from people who are really far away. And (laughs) you are one of them. So, you know, it's hard to get our schedules together, but we did... And I want to thank you for being here today. You're going to share your story and it is a scary story, um, what you've been through. So, um, you know, your people are going to learn a lot from, uh, what you went through and I want to thank you for being here today. And without further ado, Tabitha, the floor is now yours. Thank you very much. Okay. Right. Where to start? Um, I think I'll give you a little background um, of me. So I'm originally from the UK. Currently, um, I live in Australia, and I'll get to that a little bit later. Um, In terms of um, family and parents, um, my dad left when I was very young. I was two, um, and I didn't see him again until I was around 14, um, and I went and lived with him for just under two years. He'd obviously got a new family and quite a few children. Um, And one day I got home from school and his uh, wife asked him to choose me or them, um, and he chose them. So I think that was really like the first blow for me. Um, I always say that the first man to break my heart was was my dad, and he did that twice. So... Um, I came back to England. He lived in, in Wales. So I came back to England as a you know 15-year-old teenager, um, having to go back to my original school uh, where I'd left two years prior, um, which was very difficult. Um, my dad made a lot of promises to me. He you know, said, I know it's not you. I know it's my wife, but obviously he'd been with her um, from when I was two. And that was his life. And eventually, you know, the phone calls stopped. The lines were cut off and we had no contact um, as much as I tried. So I just had to cut that part of my life out, if you like. Now, um, <laughs> later on uh, in my life, um, I moved to Scotland uh, where I had a partner there Um Unfortunately, uh, we lost a baby and um, it it changed our relationship. We were due to get married um, and then I had a partner that passed away very suddenly with a stroke. So I decided after three years being in Scotland, it was time to move back to England and um, be around my friends and family. And um, I put my resume online. This is how I'll introduce the story to my narcissist ex. 
I'd applied for so many jobs and it's really strange because I hadn't applied for this one and uh, I got a phone call off a young lady the one day saying that they would like to invite me for an interview and I said oh you know I've not even moved back to England yet it's going to be a couple more weeks and they said that's fine um, we can do it over Skype so I had an interview and I was offered this um, role within this company which is when I met my ex so this was October 2016. So I started working for this company as like a, in a marketing role. Um, and I'd say it got to maybe two months into the, the role when I, I met my ex. He wasn't your typical um, looking business owner. Um, I thought he was someone that worked out the back in the factory, if I'm honest, when I used to see him in passing. And there was, he'd say hello and I'd say hi and that was it. And it was only really brought to my attention uh, when I went, knocked on his office door to actually explain that I didn't want the job anymore. I didn't find it. It was really fulfilling um, enough for me and I, it wasn't very challenging. And I just wanted to be completely honest. And, um, you know, I'd said I didn't realise you were you know, the, the owner of the business, I'm sorry that I've not introduced myself properly. And he was very easygoing, very charming, no problem. Um, and, yeah, strangely enough, um, as I'm saying to him that I want to leave this place of work, he very randomly asked me, what's the situation with your dad? And um, I was really taken aback by this comment um, because it's something that, I'd say has troubled me through my through my years, especially the times when, um, even more so now, when you feel like you want the father figure to protect you and they're not there. So part of me thought, you know, is it written all over my face that, you know, I hate that terminology, daddy issues, I just I can't stand it. But I said, look, you know, I've not had much contact with my dad. I lived with him for a short while. As a teenager, I said, but I've been trying to contact him for, you know, the last 14 years to no avail, really. I've looked on Facebook, I've tried to reach out to other family members, um, but my dad's wife was and is um, very controlling um, and has stopped him speaking to all of our side of the family. So that was that. And um, he said, just give me over the weekend, um, uh, give me a few days, sorry, to, to just have a little think about the structure of the office um, and I'll we'll have another discussion. And I said, no problem. So that was that. And I still went away thinking that was a really odd comment to make about my dad. I wonder why he asked that. Anyway, um, it was a Friday afternoon and I was called into his office and he was on the phone and um, I sat down opposite and he put the phone on loudspeaker and he was on the phone to my dad. <laughs> and I was just, I could tell it was my dad's voice straight away. And I was like, you know, mouthing to him like, oh my gosh, like, what's he saying? And uh, he was just kind of dismissing me. And, and then he put the phone down and uh, got up and said, I've got to go and pick up my son now. Um, see you Monday. <laughs> so there's my boss I'm just about to leave this job who's just found my dad for me but it's not giving me any information whatsoever so I'm just left like a puppy on the string at this point all weekend I'm like do I contact my boss is that really unprofessional but at the same time he's spoke to my dad without my permission 
am I, I didn't know how to, I really didn't know how to react to the situation. Part of me thought that this man was an absolute god. I'm like, wow, how incredible that he's gone out of his way to track down my dad. Like he clearly can see the injured child in me, if you like, and he wants to fix it. So. Can I ask one question? Of course. So you were brought into this office. Your dad is on the phone. Are you speaking to your dad or is only he speaking to his dad, to your dad? Yeah, only he's speaking. And what to are they dad. talking about? He was saying that I had approached him because um, I'll get to this bit a little bit later, but my ex also had a, a charity for um, supporting separated families. Um, so he'd made out that I'd contacted him. Um, like, and he was reaching out to my dad on behalf of me from his charity. So, um, yeah, he's saying, you know, would really like, sorry, <laughs> Tabitha would really like contact with you again. Um, and I just wanted to see where you, where you're at with that basically. So, um, yeah, so I come into work again on the Monday and I'm literally like looking out the window waiting for him to, to come into the office. Nothing. Tuesday, nothing. I thought, I'm going out of my mind here. I need to know what was said. I've been waiting, you know, 14 years for this conversation with my dad and to get some answers and why, you know, he kind of ghosted me really, if, that, if that's a term you can use, father and daughter, but... I know that that was down to his wife. Um, so I was completely abandoned, you know, twice by my dad. Um, and I felt like it was really cruel what my boss was doing. I thought, like, who knows? I've told him how long it is. Anyway, finally, he he comes into the office and uh, he said, look, you know, that's a conversa- conversation that just needs to stay man to man. And I was like... I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it. I thought, I don't, I don't want to push any boundaries here because he's my boss. <laughs> but I didn't really know what to do. Um, and he said, do you still feel the same about um, working here? I said, well, yeah. I said, you know, it's not, it, it really isn't challenging enough for me. And he said, well, I've got this charity. Um, I obviously won't mention the name, but it supports um separated families and um, parental alienation um you know families that are separated through divorce and everything else and he said that was because his ex-wife um had taken his two eldest children away from him so he's got three altogether two from his previous marriage and one you know like a love child i suppose so he'd created this um organization on the side of his um, business uh, to support people in those situations and try and um, set up like mediation between families. Obviously he did nothing like this himself. It was, you know, people that he had working for him. He was just a name to this. So so this was like a real, an actual real company that he, or business, not business, but charity that he set up because of something that he went through which which most likely was because he was actually in the wrong and set this up to make himself look better? Absolutely correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah, absolutely correct. Um, but at the time, I didn't know that. I was like, gosh, that's terrible. And he said, you know, 
I can talk to you as though um, you're my daughter that I don't see anymore and I'd love to see. And you can talk to me as though I'm your dad that I know that you want to see because we'll be able to help each other out and support each other. So even that in itself is pretty sick. I think, you know, looking back, as I say, definitely, um, I definitely see him as a predator in that, in that sense. He saw that was his way in. That was my weakness. And so he knew straight away then my eyes have just, you know, lit up because he's the one that's trying to get, you know, a meeting set up between my, my dad and I. Um, Anyway, so well, it's just, it's just now, you know, you know, just sorry for interrupting. You know, obviously at the beginning, you know, I was going to ask the question before you you said it, which was like, why would he even ask me this question? And now I'm starting to think, does he ask every woman he meets this question so he can try and do the exact same thing? Oh, there's definitely a pattern um, yeah. between partners um, where, you know, their uh, childhoods have been, um, you know, they've had abusive childhoods or their dad's not around. He definitely um, seeks out women like this. Um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, as I said, started working uh, in October 2016. So we were at... We're at Christmas now. We're just about to break up for the Christmas break. And um, he asked me what my background was um, with work. And um, I explained to him that I used to do a lot of promotion work um, when I lived in England prior. And um, he said, look, I don't invest in businesses. I invest in people. And I really don't want to lose out on you as a member of staff. Put together some a business plan over Christmas and... Uh, I think we'd we'd work really well together. And I remember getting in my car that evening, like absolutely elated, like someone sees what I'm capable of. Someone can actually believes that, you know, I can put a business together and wants to invest in my ideas. This is incredible. Like I was so excited to get home and I'd never you know, I'd never wrote a business plan or anything in my life. And I went to the bank and, um, you know, asked for their advice to know what kind of structure and the contents of a business plan. And I worked so, so hard over these two weeks. Um, and I was so excited to be able to present this person all my work. And I thought, great, you know, this is a really kind man. He's got a charity. He's just found my dad for me. He wants to make a change in the world. And, uh, he wants me to, he wants to help me, um, in my life. So it was almost infatuation. Um, and then, um, so Christmas came and went and I couldn't help but text him on Christmas day and say, you know, happy Christmas. I hope all's well. He was like, Oh, I'm just at work. I was like, Oh no, like that's, that's terrible. Like I didn't know. I knew he wasn't with his um, children's uh, what, partner at the time, mother, sorry. Um, because he'd obviously um, explained that that had ended and that's why the charity was there. But I didn't know whether he had a partner or anything, but I just said, look, um, Merry Christmas to you and your family. I really appreciate, you know, the opportunity that you're giving me and also for finding my dad, something I've been trying to do for a very long time. 
little did I know that the same tactics that he used um, to find my dad would then be what he'd use on me for the next three years to track every conversation. I had software on my mobile phone and a tracker on my car. You know, this was a man of um, a, quite a wealthy man and uh, a man with a lot of power due to the contact. So it was very easy for him to pay someone X amount of money to follow me or, you know, given the information that he wanted and that was it wasn't like he'd sat at a computer trying to find my dad for hours on end through the goodness of his heart it was just a very quick um a quick search using probably something illegal i'm sure it is so um yeah so i texted him sorry on, on christmas day and he'd explained he was at work he said you know i don't like christmas because i don't see my children and i said well i'm the same christmas is always a really difficult time for me and obviously brings out a lot of the the pain that you've had over the years um and you know it was only at this point <laughs> six seven months ago that you know i'd started seeing um, um a man called who had had passed away very suddenly and you know I think I was probably in a much more vulnerable mindset than um I actually give myself credit for so this dangling the bait with my dad was just you know such a strong um hook for me if you like so um we were due to go back into work the following week and he said before we go back to the office shall we meet um for dinner and do you want to bring your business plan with me with you I was like okay yeah fantastic and you know I didn't go like I was getting doled up for a date but I went smart and it was a big deal for me it was something that I'd worked really hard on and I wanted to prove myself to this person that I was I was worth investing in I suppose and I just yeah so we met up and um I gave him the business plan and it was uh, you know it was almost put in the back of his car and off we went for dinner and the conversation was not around the business plan whatsoever and um we'd had dinner and we were just about to have one last drink in um in a one last bar when he leaned over and kissed me so I'm like, whoa, <laughs> oh, my gosh, you know, that's just taken things to a completely different level now, especially when it, it comes to being at work. So I was due to start work the next day, and he's messaged me and said, um, don't worry about coming in today. Drive around to my house, and we'll go out for the day. And this, to be honest, Brandon, is pretty much how um, the next three years were. Um at any given point, I could never make plans. I could never, I never knew whether I was going into work. I never knew whether I would be, you know, pack your bags, we going away. It was always around times that I was trying to, I had maybe plans with my family or um, I was looking after my best friend's son. He would just say, no, come on, we, we're going. I need you to do this for me. Or I've got you, I've got some work to do. So our relationship started, um, I'd say, February 2017. And, and very is, quickly here, I just want to point out that, you know, you, this is an extreme uh, love bomb. I'm not going to say it's a love bomb. It's an extreme trust-building situation where right off the bat, he has found 
your dad, number one. Yes. You're mm-hmm. you're confused about the whole thing, but at the same time, you're like, who is this guy? I mean, and, and grateful that like he can, he went to this, these links in the sense of, oh, this guy's a good guy. Uh, yeah. Number two, he's listening to you in a way that, you know, you haven't been really listened to in a while about like your ideas. You're being seen yeah. as an actual person. Yeah, <laughs> and you're really taken aback. You don't want to screw this up in any way. You know, this is yeah. really like a dream come true here, and yeah. and now uh, you know you're supposed to go and talk about these things, and now he's confused it and blurred the lines between work and and love life. And of course, in this situation, you're on your back foot here. You don't know what mm-hmm. to do. You've had these promises made to you that you're going to be seen and heard. And in a way, you in a, you have to at this point be like, you know, how do you, not you don't have to, but very difficult to say, um, hold on one second, we have to stop this. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. that's not appropriate. I'm leaving. When two seconds ago, uh, he was all about the dreams. So it's a very confusing yeah. spot to be in. And, you know, uh, with as far as like blurring the lines of what is actually going on here, is he interested in, in me? Is he, was he interested in this at all? So, you know, you got into this relationship here and are you confused about what's happening and how he's abusing his power? Because right now with everything that's been done right here, he's in control. Like this is a predator that's in control. Uh, Absolutely. I I was so confused because part of me, you know, there was no immediate attraction to this man um, when I first met him. Um, I was very excited about the prospects of maybe working together um, because of, you know, how he'd sold that um, to me. And I thought, great, you know, and I thought I could. And then obviously the, the with the kiss and with the finding my dad, it was like two parallel um, situations that were very, very close to each other. And I didn't really know which lane to stay in. Like, am I in a relationship with this guy and I'm going to go on and do my own thing? But at the same time, I don't want to work with someone that's offering to go into business with me and be, you know, in a relationship with him. That's just, that's too complicated. You know, and you're talking about setting up a business, the financial implications. You know, I've always been so independent. I've lived on my own since I was 16 at that point, at a very young age, um, and always been, you know, a survivor. I've had two, three jobs at the same time to keep a roof over my head. And he knew this. Um, So that element of control was already starting to begin in my eyes when I look back now because if I was to have gone ahead and started this business with him, um, you know, it would have been all my hard work, but ultimately he would have been the person, you know, paying my salary. So, um, so yeah, very, very confused. Um, and just, a, yeah, just all over the place. Like I just didn't, really didn't know what to make of it. Cause this guy is still my boss at the end of the day at this point. So um, we start seeing each other a bit more regularly um, over the beginning of, of the year. And uh, in February, he said, let's go away for a few days. And I was like, you know, have I got holiday allowance <laughs> accrued yet? Like, you know, I'm his employee. Uh, he's like, oh, don't worry about that. 
you know, but I like to know where I stand. Like, I want to be fair. If I'm going on holiday, I want to take it out of my holiday allowance like every other member of staff. You know, I didn't like this special treatment. It wasn't like we'd been in a relationship for 10 years. I didn't want to be the girl that's, do you know what I mean? Like, um, so we went away and uh, it was just for four or five days, um, a quick break, and we spent some time together. Now, there was this one evening where we were having dinner and um, <laughs> it's, I don't want to use bad language, but you can beep me out. Um, we were sat having dinner and uh, I said something about my, my business plan and the comment that he made back, it was evident to me that he hadn't even taken a look at it. And uh and I just said, like, um, how can I trust you now? Like, I worked so bloody hard on that. And he just took one look at me, looked dead straight in my eyes and said, Bab, you're just a pair of tits. And I remember that was the first blow to my stomach. I was like, oh, my God, like, what have I got myself in for? I couldn't believe it. But me being the strong, independent woman that I thought I was at that point, I was like, I'm not standing for this, you know, and I got up and I went to, um, back to the hotel and went to bed and that was it. The next day, um, we came home and the silent treatment, this was the first, um, you know, instance of the, of, of the silent treatment. That was it. He dropped me off from the, um, from the airport and said, see you in work on Monday. So straight away it was like, okay, we're back to <laughs> back to being boss and employee. That's fine, no problem. So I did. I went back to work and um, you know carried on. He at this uh, as well. We had four of the members of staff working in the office. He'd got rid of all of them. Um, he'd sacked them all and said, you know, you can manage this. And uh, while we figure everything else out, I want you to be the voice of the charity because you've come from a broken home and, you know, I want it to come from you. So I'm updating this, you know, charity website. Other members of staff have just been, you know, removed. Oh, it's not working out with them. I was like, right, okay. One of which um, was a woman that I'm going to call Pam. Um, who very quickly um, into my employment um, left and nothing was said. I didn't really know her that well, um, so she was made to leave. So we've got back from our holiday. It's very, um, I wouldn't say hostile, but it's just a professional. You know, he wasn't someone that was in, had to be in the office five days a week, nine to five, he would just pop in for half an hour, have a few chats and then leave. And he would walk past my office. But I felt like I was like a, a puppy <laughs> waiting at the window for when his car pulled up. And, you know, I'd be absolutely distraught that he, he couldn't even come into the office. We'd just been on holiday together and, okay, he said something rude to me, but I always felt like I was being punished just for stating the obvious that he hadn't, you know, read this um, business plan. Anyway, so I just I got over it and then um, I was leaving work one day and uh, he grabbed me by the arm. Um, it was only us in the office. He says, look, I'm, I'm sorry. And I could tell, like, it was literally like he spat it out. He, it was really hard for him to say that. He said, can I make it up to you? 
I said, look, you know, I just don't want things to get confusing at work. Like, I know what my job is, blah, 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 blah. I said, don't worry about that. It's always don't worry about that. So you'd go in to ask him one question, but you'd leave with like 20 questions. That, and everyone used to say that you'd never get a straight answer from him. You would always end up more confused um, than when you went in. So um, three days later, um, he said, I've booked us another trip. We're going to Cancun for two weeks, business class flights. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I felt like I was like a pretty woman with Richard Gear. I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, I've never been to that part of the world. And this guy must really like me because he really wants to make it for, you know, his rude comments. So we go. And it's all very exciting for me anyway because I've, you know, I've never had this kind of lifestyle. Um, and yeah, you know, I was, I was massively blown away by it, and um, I'm not ashamed to say that. Like, I, I used to think, like, oh, that makes me sound, you know, like a gold digger or something. But I, you know, I wasn't. I've always worked hard, but of course, like when you're shown this different way of life, it was, I was just blown away. It felt, I felt really wanted and really special that this person had, had you know, gone to this. Um, gone to these efforts I suppose and um we were maybe four days into the holiday and um we were he he suggested we get into the pool and um I went to go in first and there was a group of American guys on the other side of the pool and as I got in he stopped and I said, come on, you're coming in. And he said, looked, and it's as though he assessed the situation. He said, I'm just going to go to the bar. So I'm like in the pool on my own. And obviously these guys have heard my English accent and was like, hi, like, where are you from? And I'm thinking, oh, this, I don't want this to look dodgy that he's you know, gone to the bar and now I'm talking to this group of guys. Anyway, so um, I was just making small talk and I got out of the pool and I thought, where is he? And then one of these guys has came over and he's like, can I give you my number? Like, who are you with there? I need to mention as well, there's 20 years between my ex and I. Um, again, the whole, I don't know, father-daughter weird set up older men you know it's probably been something that I've done a couple of times not not with that kind of um, age gap but I've definitely been more attracted to older men um anyway so this guy has came over and he's like give me let me give you my card I was like I don't want it I'm in a relationship you know um go away basically and he lay on the bed next to me and I'm thinking oh my gosh like you've got you must have you know oh yeah everyone around me could see that I was distressed and that I was telling this guy to go away but when my ex came back he said did you two just swap numbers I said no I said ask anyone and there was a couple next to me that were like no like she was really trying to tell him to go away I think it was just his mates were you know it was the whole bravado thing like go and ask that girl give her your number and I was very clear like I wasn't interested um I wasn't going to disrespect the person that I was with like that it's just not in my nature <clears throat> anyway um I'd he'd left his card and I I picked it up and threw it like under the table um, in the with the um, 
umbrella next to us, just threw it underneath, and he picked it up. And again, this is it's very hard for me to say because um, it's like horrible language, but again, this bleeped me out. He went over to this group of guys with the business card. He always used to walk with his chin up in the air. That's one thing I remember. He walked over and um, threw the card at the guy and in front of everyone round the pool said, it's my... And I just felt so small and so cheap and so embarrassed. And then he just got in the pool and started talking to another couple. And I'm thinking, oh, what, you know, what do I do here? Like, I'm so, I was so angry of how he had dealt with that situation. There were people around me that were, you know, explaining to him that there was no way that I'd address them in a way that I was, you know, I wanted them to continue the conversation. And yet it felt like I was being punished for someone else's actions. Well, not just that you're being punished in his action there with his words. He's not concerned about you. He's concerned yeah, that too. like it's him who was hurt, you know? Yeah. He wanted to show Bruce the other guy that. like he was the winner, you know? So it, mm-hmm. it had nothing to like his reaction there was just all about him. There was no thought of you in this situation at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I felt that straight away, you know, it bruised his ego. And I can understand, you know, as I say, there was a big age gap between us. And, you know, if I was hanging off, um, you know, people at the bar and, you know, dressed in a certain way. But I was just, I wasn't like that. I'm such a loyal person and I did everything in my power to make, I do with with anyone. I make everybody that I'm in contact with, I make them feel loved and special and respected. And, you know, there was no way that I gave off that impression to these guys. And it, it was just horrible. And um, the silent treatment started again and we had tickets um for an event that evening and I was like what are we going to do are we like if you don't want to go that's fine like I completely understand that today's been a bad day and I'm sorry but I promise you you know I'm literally pleading with him like just please talk to me so I don't care if you shout at me but please don't ignore me please please say something I need to go for a walk for you know, hours at a time and he'd just come back and get in the shower and I'd be sat there like, are we going for dinner? Like, what are we doing? Really didn't know what to do. Anyway, it was like, yeah, whatever, we'll still go. So we went and he literally was like a performance um, and he literally just stood behind me for the full two hours with his arms folded and did not speak a word to me. So it got late and I just said, should we go now? Um, and yeah, he, he said something horrible and, um, walked out and, uh, knowing full well, I didn't have a handbag, um, with me. Um, <clears throat> all I had was my, uh, my phone, like in a, a, like a little bag, like a phone holder thing. He had always had all the money, all the cards, you know, he would be the one that would be responsible for the safe in the room. And he left me and um, it was two o'clock in the morning and I had to walk back to the hotel, which took me four hours um, in the middle of Cancun. And um, I'm trying to ring him like, 
like, what's going on? Like, he's just ignoring my calls. I was frightened because I had no money on me and there was taxi drivers beeping the horn, like, it's not safe for you to be walking. It was just one long street, fortunately for me, but it took me hours and hours. And I was just, oh, I was absolutely devastated. I couldn't believe that he'd left me in a foreign country. And it was just so dangerous. And, um... When I, um, because I'd been wiping my tears off my face, obviously my, my makeup, I had like a black dress on and I was rubbing my hands like on my thighs to, to wipe my tears away. So there was marks on my, my dress. I've came back to the hotel and um, I lit, I really thought he'd, you know, he maybe had lost his phone and would be pacing up and down the room, like really concerned because it had been like three, four hours. And obviously he knew that I didn't have any money on me or anything, stupidly. Um, And he was just tucked up in bed, like just fast asleep. And I went over to him and I pulled the quilt off him. And I was like, I can't believe you've just left me and I've had to walk all the way home on my own. I was, what, 28 at this point. But still, it doesn't matter what age. It was dangerous for a young woman to be walking home at that time of night in a different country. And that was the first time he ever hit me. Um, And the first thing he did was... Um, And it just stunned me. And um, it really hurt me, and I... I did. I did scream, <laughs> something that I never ever did. <laughs> all the other times after that, but, but I think because it was the first time, I screamed. And um, somebody next door actually called reception in the hotel that we were staying at, and um, I got all my stuff together, put it in a case. The security knocked on the door, and I was put in another room for a couple of days, which I had to pay for myself in this incredibly expensive hotel that I couldn't really afford to to do that but I did and um I just I never saw him for two days I don't know where he went I don't know what he did but that was just him all over so I'm obviously calling my friends like I didn't want to worry you know my mom but calling my friends and they were like, oh, my God, we need to get you home. We need to get you a flight back to England. I was like, oh, I cannot believe it. What am I going to do about, you know, my job? What am I going to do about this? Up to this point also, I'd moved house, um, and he'd said, why don't you move closer to work? I can suggest a couple of places. So I'd just moved into a new house that I was renting as well. So the so, – yeah, so – we he didn't talk to me um, for those couple of days, and then um, I was just in the sun one day, and uh, he came over to me, and he was like, "Should we go for dinner tonight together?" And I was like, I, "I don't even know what to say to you. I just want to go home." He was like, "Let's just talk before we make any rash decisions." So I did. I met him, and um, he was still like very angry. And uh, halfway through dinner. He just, um, he put his hand on my knee and looking very, very guilty and very sad, he said, I'm sorry. And I remember seeing like his bottom lip going a little bit and I should never, ever have excused that behaviour. That wouldn't, should not have been enough. But I think at that point I was already so, um, uh, the trauma bond was already forming 
even at that stage, 100%. We had the rest of the holiday um, and and that was it. We got back to England and uh, he dropped me off at home and the same thing happened again. He dropped me off at home and I didn't hear of him for <laughs> four or five days. It was just like he'd just go missing in action. No text messages, no replies to my messages, no replies to my phone calls, nothing. Um, so everything that had happened that night wasn't really discussed again, if you like, but he had a habit of, even though things had happened a long time ago or a couple of weeks prior or a week ago, he would go quiet on me and give me a silent treatment and say, oh, it's because um, I've thought about that night again and, you know, it's really bothered me and I'm really pissed off and I want you to stay the, away from me. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't deal with this. This is just, I thought we'd spoke about it or whatever else. So I went back to work and um, didn't tell, obviously, anybody um, the details of what had gone on. And I actually, you know, played it down to my friends. I said, oh, you know, you know, it wasn't that bad. Like, it was just a really sorry I called you up uh, upset. I was just frightened and it, we were both really drunk. We wasn't, like, neither of us were. Um, <clears throat> and then um, one day he said to me, um, so that... This is a month later. I'm at work and he said, look, I need you to have an alibi tonight. And I was like, what? He says, I need to go and sort something out with my ex-wife. I've just got to do a little bit of digging. It's for the benefit of my children. I've just got to go in. But I need you to have an alibi. <clears throat> I won't be seeing you tonight. So I stayed at my friend's, my best friend's house, and I was sitting there with her and her partner. And I was like, what could he be doing? Like... And it really like confused us all. I didn't have a clue. And I remember I didn't want to stay there, so I came home and I texted him, like, please come round. Like, is everything okay? I'm worried about you. Nothing. And then the next morning, he just sent me a random picture of a like a, the swirl on a coffee. I was like, that's really odd. And I was like, oh, are you, are you okay? He's like, yeah, all sorted. Um, I'll see you tonight. I'll pick you up at seven. I was like, okay. A week later, I've gone into work and I've had. Remember, I told you about Pam that yeah. I used to work. Used to work, yeah. So, I because I took on the charity when she abruptly left. Um, I used to receive <clears throat> all of her emails um, and would address them. It was just the overflow of her leaving and me starting in that position, and. I had a reminder email from a hotel company saying, don't forget to leave us a review for your recent stay. And, you know, when you feel that in your gut, I thought, oh. and I looked and in the deleted items in that folder, there was a, um, a receipt for a hotel booking for the night that he told me to have an alibi in her name booked using the charity's email address. So <laughs> I knew straight away then he's he's sleeping with this this woman. Uh, I just knew. I knew. I had a feeling anyway, but I, I just knew. This just confirmed it. And I just got all my things. And, um, but yeah, got my things together, left my computer on the screen that it was and walked out and, uh, and never worked for him again in that office 
and I went to my mum's house and I've got the printout of this this um, hotel confirmation. I'm like, Mum, like this, like I'm not going crazy. Like this is what is, this is what has been going on. I knew that he was seeing someone. I just had this feeling because he would just go missing for days on end and then make out that it was just fine to do that. And and I, um, yeah, so I was, you know, starting to act like detective, trying to work it out. And he randomly messaged me, which he never would be the first to message me and just say, oh, is everything okay? And I was like, you know, you've been caught out. And he then sent me a screenshot of a message that, like, looked like it had been sent from Pam, saying, you know, I cannot believe that someone's had access to my emails. And that was a room that was booked for my sister. Um, you know, we had a family gathering. And I was like, this is just such a load of rubbish. The hotel is around the corner from where this Pam lives. I know that. Um, you know, they're the type of family that would put the opening of a buffet on Facebook, you know, there's pictures of it. There was no family gathering. I just knew, I knew, and it makes me sound really psychotic because you, I was just so consumed in what was going on. And I thought I'm too clever for this, like to, for someone to pull the wool over my eyes. Like I know what's going on here. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I just, I called everything off and, uh, using the business plan that I'd created, <laughs> I, um, went to something called the Prince's Trust where, um, it's like an organization where you present your business ideas and you do like a course for a couple of weeks and you sit in front of a load of investors and they borrow you the money to start your business. So I was, he's constantly messaging me like, I'll just give you the money. Like whatever it is, I'll just give you the money. I was like, no, I want to do this properly because I want to make sure that I'm learning everything too. So I completely cut him out my life. And then he would just turn up at my house, banging on the door at two in the morning. And he would not stop knocking until I answered the door. It was constant. And I opened the door. I was like, go away. Like, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't work for you anymore. Like, what you did in Mexico, you crossed the line. You obviously have a relationship with somebody else. I'm not interested. And he was like, this is my effing house. I was like, what? He was like, I've been paying your wages. So the rent, where do you think the money comes from? This is my house. And literally, before you know it, there was a key cut. There was a safe up in the loft that... I didn't realise it was up there where he'd been hiding, you know, money and God knows what else. He'd been, you know, letting himself in and out of there. Um, oh, yeah, it was frightening. So I felt like... So, it was so, like so secretly, he had a key cut to your house when you weren't paying attention. Correct. And he was hiding things inside your house without your knowledge. Yes, correct. And the things yeah. that were being hid inside your house I, I, were money and, and other things. But I assume at that point, you know, I'm just going to take a guess because I really I don't know that he could have hid uh, listening devices or possibly cameras. Yeah, so that that was the thing that, you know, really started to concern me. Um so during this time, I know that I need to get this man out of my life. And um, so I'm starting this little business on my own, um, nothing to do with him. And he just hated that. He hated the fact that, you know, I didn't need him and that I'd gone out and done this rather than accept the money from him and, you know, be a good girl, do as I'm told. I would have conversations with my grandmother 
and I would be driving home and I would be sent an audio file from him, which was literally just minutes and minutes of conversation, private conversation between my nan and, and myself. My phone, you know, it wasn't as if I'd pocket dialed him. I could not understand how this was happening. I remember having a a phone call with another friend on my friend's mobile and he went to town on me because he knew all the details of what I'd said and that, you know, I'm just trying to get away from him. I've got to be really careful because he just seems to know everything I'm saying. And he knew everything. He knew details about things that were going on within my friendship group that, you know, he threatened to to use... um, you know, against me because one of my best friends had slept with one of my other friends, you know, years prior. And, you know, I was like, I'm going to use that information to break that family up. And I was like, how the hell? So my friends are like, Tabitha, you know, we don't want you. Um, Why are you telling him all this stuff? And I'm like, I'm not. I promise you I would never, ever tell him anything but he knew everything he knew when I was coming home he knew what time I was I was in it it was it was shocking I think I was just so frightened so frightened and the worst thing is is that I would be pleading with him he'd be like he'd message me and go so who were you with last night and I'd be like I promise you I stayed at home all night I can show you what I watched on my Netflix account like I I can tell you I can show you messages between me and my friends to show that I was just at home I'm already making excuses for this guy's behavior and trying to prove my innocence when really I should have just gone I don't have to answer these questions. We're not together. But I was so frightened because I just, I felt like I was always trying to prove my innocence to him because I, and he, the worst thing is, is that he knew I was at home because he had these devices and this software. So that must have really boosted his ego or I don't know. He must have loved every minute of that. Um, Knowing that I was, you know, in tears on the phone saying, please, like, believe me. Um, we ended up getting, you know, back together. It was almost, I was just so exhausted with it all that, you know, the love bombing again would, it would start and we'd go away and the same thing would happen every time he took me away. You know, my friends would say, Stace, you, you can't have a black eye one day or marks around your neck one day, and then the next day you being, you know, you going on holiday, you you flying somewhere else. And I was saying, it's not like that. He's booking things to take me out of my out of my my usual um, routine, away from my family. It was almost like it, the abuse was even worse when we were out the country, and it was always like, let's do. I need you for this business trip. I need your help with this. And I mean, I was just. I was just hooked. I was hooked. I just wanted to make him happy so that um, he would stop with all this other devious stuff around my life. It was either absolutely incredible with him and we're having these amazing experiences 
or it'd be the complete opposite and the, just the silence and the, the physical violence, the manipulation, the, you know, don't tell anyone where we're going because people get jealous and you'll lose your friends, you'll lose your family. And I used to think, oh, it's probably right, actually. This sounds terrible, um, saying, oh, we're off again. They'd be like, oh, my God, you're going, going away again? You know, money was no object for this guy. But he didn't care that... You know, I'd say, oh, it's really important that I go to this networking networking event on Saturday. I'd be like, oh, you can do that another time. We go in here. He always wanted to take me away from everybody, always. Um, so, as I say, this went on and off for a long time, and then um, we get to so November two thousand seventeen. Um, he said to me, "You, I had my first. I, le- I learned to drive very late on <laughs> in my twenties because I'd always lived on my own, so I could never afford rent and do my driving lessons. But I managed to pass pass my test about a year and a half prior to meeting him, and I had this lovely little old beetle that I absolutely adored, and she was a bit scuffed and." You know, it was, it was a bit old here and there, but I absolutely loved this little beetle. And um, I called her Audrey because I'm obsessed with Audrey Hepburn. And he said, look, Audrey's broke. There's uh, cream around the engine or whatever. I don't really understand cars. I was like, are you joking? He's like, no, you're going to need to, you know, get rid. And on my birthday, we drove around to his house and there was a car on the front with a big bow. Happy birthday, Stacey. I was like, oh, my God, this is too much. So he's like, don't worry. It's just a company car. I want you to start working for me again, and let's really put our relationship properly. Why don't you move in with me? You're paying all this money rent. I promise I'll support you, blah, 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 blah. This is obviously all I ever wanted. I just wanted him to cut out, you know, this other women or woman, whatever was going on there, and he promised he had. Um. So I did. So I emptied my house and moved in with him. Um, a month later, it was Christmas. Same thing happened. I've got you the new iPhone <laughs> for Christmas. And I remember seeing the box thinking, this is already open, but I didn't want to question it. And that's when, obviously, the software had put, been put on my phone and this new company car that I'd been um, provided with had a tracker on it. So... He knew my every move, my every phone call, text message. I was made to give up social media. I wasn't on social media for uh, just under three years while while I was with him. Um, and I remember just he would leave the house when I moved in and lock me in. And uh, he'd do it very, like, you know, be really blasé about it. Like, oh, you don't need, you're not going out today, are you? And I'd be like, um, no, it's not. He's like, all right, I'll just lock the door. See you later. He'd be gone like 12 hours. And I'd be thinking like, but and his phone would be off and he'd say, oh, you know, he's very into like conspiracy theories and, um, you know, the government's watching us. And so his phone would just be off. He'd just leave it off all day um, and then he would just, you know, walk back through the door and I'd be there like the little good housewife cooking dinner and the house would be clean. And I'd constantly send emails, everything that I was doing for him work-wise, I would copy him in so he could see that I was doing what I'd said that I was doing and that it was almost me logging in that I was still at home. 
even though he'd locked me in, I still felt like I was trying to prove to him that I was loyal, you know. Um, so we, things were again, getting really bad. Um, I, he would all just, you know, what? I mean, I could talk about it all day with phones, no notifications ever on his phones would come up. Um, there was various SIM cards and different mobile numbers. There was three different laptops. I could never just go on his laptop to do a Google search for something. It would be use your own. Very, very, very secretive man. Very secretive. Um, you know, there'd be times when I would come home and I'd, I'd see like a, a blonde hair on the stairs or I'd see like a tampon packet in the in the bin. I'd be too scared to actually say, what's going on here? Because I didn't want the, the wrath of all of that. So it wasn't like I was turning a blind eye to it. I just, I just, I couldn't bear to go through it all. I just couldn't, couldn't deal. Um... And I just got to the point where, you know, my family were like, we don't see you anymore. It was just easier for me to make excuses and stay in the house exactly where he wanted me rather than go and see my family and friends and have to, I used to put my mobile phone, like either leave it in my car or put it in the cupboard upstairs in my best friend's son's room because I felt like he was always listening. And my friends and my family were just they were so concerned at this point and I'd lost a lot of weight. Um, you know, he would say, I'm taking us here on the weekend, but there's one rule, you can't bring your makeup bag. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, and I would, you know, I'd go ahead or we're having a, a rough holiday, a, a rough weekend away. You can only bring you, your tracksuit, you know, no, no getting dressed up or whatever. And I used to say, I don't do it for anybody else to do it for myself I like to put my makeup on I like to look presentable you know um and because of um all the stress my my hair was very very thin um and falling out and I remember having hair extensions put in and oh my gosh like the argument that that caused and I just had I went and had them taken out um, because it was all like you're fake. Why are you drawing attention to yourself? Are you trying to get me into fights? And I'm like, not at all. Like, I don't even go out, you know, I'm trying to run this little business from home and do all your work. Um, so then we get to August and um, enough was enough. And um, he was... He was out one day and uh, I just, I always always felt so sick, you know, like I would, and I say this a lot now when I'm, I'm talking to people that <clears throat> I remember standing at the front door, you know, with a small suitcase ready to run out the door to my car and it would probably be three metres away from me, but it was as though there was a invisible electric fence on the front door that it was almost more terrifying to run away from the situation that I was fearful of actually living in because I thought if he comes round the, the corner in his van and sees me, like, I just could not, could not find the courage. And I would run upstairs and be like, oh, what are you doing? Quickly unpack my case, you know, take my shoes off, put them back in the cupboard. Like, what, what am I doing? Oh, 
you can't do that. Like, he'll, he'll get you. <laughs> um, and my friend, I remember saying, was like, enough is enough. Like, just get all your really important documents and things that you need out of the house. You can't go on like this, you know. And I was secretly squirreling away a little bit of money in a completely um, separate account to my normal account. And um, he said to me one day, why have you got £2,000 saved in a different account? And I I, I had to run to the toilet to, to be sick. Um, because at that point I saw, okay, I know that these listening devices and but no but I'd not told anybody about that account I didn't say it in a text message I didn't say it even to my, my family I was just selling little bits of clothes and you know rubbish on eBay and I'd just been scrolling it away just because I thought one day I'm going to be able to just go and even if I just go for a couple of weeks just to get away from him and and just calm down and I, I was constantly in this over um just this state of just being over alert you know I would feel him coming into the house before he'd even put his key through the door it was as though I could feel his presence pulling into the driveway um and I just I had really really bad um I sounds horrible but felt like I was constantly on the toilet my stomach would just go um, because I was, I was just so afraid. Um, and you know, it was <laughs> the cycle of the abuse that was going on. Um, it was so hot and cold. And I used to say to my friends, it's like living with someone that's terminally ill. You've got to appreciate the really good days, but my God, when the bad days are bad, they are really, really bad. And I just would want to become very, very small and very quiet and stay out of his way because nothing that I could do was good enough. Um, nothing. So I remember building up the courage and say, getting a few of these things out and having a really a, a little small uh, storage unit. And one day my friend helped me. And um, while I knew he was going to be out all day, he always used to go out one day a week where he would be out from eight in the morning and come back about 10 o'clock at night to go and see a friend. Um, And uh, I thought, this is my chance. And me and my friend loaded up my car and her car and we put everything, just clothes and, you know, sentimental items, not furniture or anything like that, but just all my stuff and put it into a storage unit. And um, he had cameras in his own house. And um, I had a cat who I absolutely adored um, who was there. And that was the only thing that I couldn't get out because at that point I didn't have anywhere to go. I was just on a sofa at my friend's house for the night. And he said, look, if you've made your decision and you're leaving fine, don't ever bring anyone round to my house again. Um, I'm changing the locks, um, you know, this, that and the other. Um, but he said, we've got uh, the theatre booked for tonight, <laughs> which I didn't know about. And he said, Let, can we just end this relationship properly and go to the theatre? And you'd think, like, wow, like I must have had the idiot written across my forehead. I agreed, and I lied to my friend. I said to my friend, oh, I'm going to see my nan um, this evening. (laughs) 
And um, I did. I went. I went to the theatre. Went to the theatre, and we sat and watched the show. And then we were just about to go in for dinner um, at a restaurant, and he just turned on his heel and started walking towards a taxi. Um, I wasn't allowed to take my phone out that night. That was another thing he was obsessed with. Like I could never be on my phone or have my phone like we, if we were on holiday it would have to be locked in the safe that only he would have access to the, the key code to the safe and um I'd left I'd gone out to the theater with him but I'd left the phone at his house when I'd got dropped off at the taxi on the kitchen side um and he started walking towards the taxi and I said where are you going he said oh forget this I'm going home I was like what what's going on with you and he was like, no, no, no. And I was like, well, I'm coming with you. I'm, I'm getting my phone, like, and I'll, I'll leave. And so my car was parked outside of his house. And um, I came into the house and um, went over to the kitchen to, to get my phone. And he opened up a drawer and grabbed hold of a knife and said, And I was like, at that point, I remember just seeing it was though his eyes turned black. He was seizing, absolutely seizing. He was so hungry. And I went to grab onto my phone and run out the door. I had my, my car key in my, in my bra. I always kept my car key in my bra. And um, he hit me at the back of the head, and I remember falling down. And um, I was in the hallway at the um, at the front door at the time, and I was screaming. And um, I remember I'd pushed a glass canister off the kitchen side table. There was like nuts in there, I think, seeds. And I thought if I can just alert a neighbour, because I knew he had realised that he had lost all control of me. I had left the house. Um, you know, I took all my things out. Um, that was obviously the most lethal point. And um, I tried to, I, I was trying to get myself off the floor and he sat on top of me. And I was obviously clawing at his face and he actually moved further up my body so that his two knees were in my shoulder blades while he strangled me. So I was defenseless. Like I couldn't defend myself at all. I had. I could not push him off. You know, he sat on my arms. My arms are next to my body, and he sat on my chest. Um, and I I remember trying to spit at him just so that he would get off my throat to um, wipe his, his face, anything that I could do to try and push him off me. And... Um, you know, I couldn't. And he was saying, you've done this because of, I don't see my daughter. His eyes were black. Like, I've never, ever seen anything like it in my life. And um, I really thought this was it. I remember looking at the radiator on the floor and thinking, this is it. Like, this is the end of where this is, is going. This is the end for me. Um, and it was as though all that anger of not seeing his two children especially his older daughter, was, was he was taking that out on me with his hands around my throat. And um, 
he got off me and I ran out the door and he pushed me onto the driveway and he got his phone and he started to record me. And he was saying, please, please don't ever come around here again and threaten me with a knife. Please, I love you. Like, why are you doing this? He was already gathering evidence for in case I went to the police to have his story, basically, to make out that I had obviously left, but I'd come back round to his and started an argument and he had had to defend himself in some way. That, to me, was the single biggest um, event that happened that I thought, you are a monster. What you've just done to me in your first instinct is to like how do you even how does anybody even think in that way like you've I've just nearly lost consciousness and you the first thing you think of is not oh my gosh what have I just done it's right get my phone and record her as though she's um you know came over here and attacked me have an alibi ready for the police um and I remember driving getting in the car like dry heaving, like I couldn't get my breath and the marks around my neck. I I had a huge bruise underneath my chin where he whacked um, my head off the floor. I didn't, I honestly didn't know for days where that bruise had come from because it had all happened so quick. The biggest thing for me is being hit on the back of the head, falling down and obviously the strangulation and I could not work out where that other bruise had come from but obviously things happen so quickly in that situation and my back was covered I mean it was black and blue my whole back from where I was obviously trying to push myself off the off the ground he didn't kick me in the back or anything like that but I think where he'd been so heavy on my chest and me trying to push him off it was just it was black so I remember getting in the car and driving to my nearest friend's house, um, who's like a big brother to me. And fortunately, you know, he'd fallen asleep on the sofa. Um, so I I fell into, like, I was banging on the door, like, help, please, my car was still running, like, the keys were in the engine, and I obviously didn't have my phone or anything to call um, anybody because he'd stopped me having that. As I, before I drove away, sorry, he, I could hear him smashing the house up, um, which now I know that he was obviously trying to build this story in case I went to the police that I'd come over and, you know, caused him trouble. So my friend said, I'm just going to go outside and turn your car off. He sat me down and he gave me a brandy and the first thing he did was grab grab um, the phone to ring the police and I said no 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 you can't ring the police you can't ring the police he'll like he will kill me if I bring the police to his like no way he was like are you just going to allow this to happen I was like I can't um I can't go to the police you don't understand like he I'd lied so much to my friends about what was going on they knew things weren't right but I always had an excuse for everything and I was just hiding so much from my family and friends and I was so sore Um, and the next morning I got up and drove to my my mum's house and I remember it was about quarter to six in the morning and I've 
I've got a younger brother who's nearly 18. He wasn't that old at the time. He was maybe 14, 15, and um, he's autistic. And um, I remember him looking out the window like, Mom, it's, you know, my sister. And um, she was like, what? I'm really early. And um, she opened the door and, again, she just grabbed my arm, screamed, um, grabbed the phone. And I was like, no, please. I said, Mum, if you ring the police, I will never talk to you again. You don't understand what we're dealing with here. There's a lot that I've not told you. you please, he's listening to all our conversations. He knows, you know, this person, that person. He will, like, he'll kill me if I ring the police. Please, please, please. My mum's like, I can't sit here and look at my daughter. My nan came round. My nan was physically sick as soon as she saw me. Like, it was horrific. So I, that was it. I changed my phone. I went out and bought a new phone. I bought a new laptop. And I, like, I had to get away from this man. I had to. Um, and, um, I moved in with my friend, um, and I stayed there for a couple of months. And then I just got a new job, um, and uh, my first day there, I had a bunch of flowers delivered, and uh, it just said inside B-A-C, which is what he used to call me, his ball and chain. And I knew straight away that wasn't him being romantic. That was him saying, I know where you are. You know, don't think you're getting out of this this easily. Like, I know where you're working and where you are. And I tried so hard with this job to remain completely anonymous because obviously he was my last listed employer and I couldn't ask him for a reference. So another um, person I'd worked for in the past, I'd had to ask him to change the dates and things because I just... I know it sounds really sneaky, but I could not let this man know where I was working. I didn't want to be, I didn't want that stress. I just wanted to get on with my life and get away from him. I was absolutely terrified by him at that point. So during these three months, I, um, so the flowers got sent and then it was just bombarding me with messages I dare you, question mark, and like a screenshot of, you know, a hotel in Amsterdam or, um, you know, a flight that was leaving for Cuba in, in a few days. I dare you. Let's see what you make. Like, you're almost willing me to, you know, you don't want to be working for someone else, do you? You don't, you know, trying to, it, it was just too much. And, um, so obviously the attack had happened in August. We're now in the end of October. And uh, he said, oh, I, that whole time, as awful as it was, I remember my friend, I remember crying, just constantly crying and not eating. And my friend um, who had seen me that first night took, grabbed me by the shoulders and stood me in front of the mirror. He said, stop crying. Look at what he has done to you. How many times have you got, like, he would just put me in front of the mirror. Look at the state of you. Look at what he's done to you. Remember that. 
And I was just, I couldn't explain to my friends. My friends just did not understand this trauma bond. Even my mum was like, are you mad? Why are you crying over him? He's an absolute monster. I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm coming off a, a drug, a strong drug. Like I can't get out of bed. I can't, I cannot think of anything but him. And then obviously when all these little things started happening, I would leave for work and someone had put the window wipers up on my car. There'd be things posted through the door, you know, where I was staying. And my friend said, you know, sorry, <laughs> said my own name again. My friend said, um, you know, I can't have this like at, at my home. Like it started to frighten me. And I was like, oh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't obviously want to bring the trouble to my mum's home because of my, my brother with his autism. And um, I was due to go to New York for my 30th birthday um, a few weeks later. I've always wanted to go because I wanted to go to Tiffany's and, you know, eat a croissant like Audrey Hepburn did in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's my favourite film, something I've wanted to do since I was a little girl. And I uh, booked to go with my friend, and um, he started with the bombarding of the messages. I met up with him, and he was absolutely my poison and my remedy. <laughs> that first time I saw him I remember thinking that he looked really underweight and it made me feel terrible I thought, oh my gosh like this has really affected him he must really love me and whatever demons are going on in his head maybe I can just help him and fix him and he must be going through some real hard stuff and hard pain you know with not seeing his children to have done that to me anyway he said um I want you to sit here it was a Friday evening and email your boss and tell them it's not the job for you and let's work this out. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I just want a little bit more time to think about it. Like this is the fact he says, do you not trust me? You know, and <laughs> absolutely. I did not trust him. I was absolutely terrified of him, but I couldn't say that. I was like, of course I do. Like I know. Yeah. I look back now. I think, wow. Anyway, um, he said, tell your friend you'll refund her half of the money. I want to take you to New York as we'd originally planned. So I'd lied to my family and friends and said, um, I'm going, still going with my friend um, to New York. And um, I went there. So not only had I gone with him <laughs> and lied about that, on the day of my birthday, we went to Tiffany's. I went to the toilet, and as I walked back, I couldn't see where he'd gone, and the security guard said, oh, madam, your, your partner's just over there. And I sat down. I said, what are you doing? You can't just sit here. He went, oh, just play along. I'm just going to get us some free, free shampers. And this lady comes out with all these different rings, and I'm like, oh, don't do this. Uh, like, that's just typical him. Like, he was a big kid. He loved to watch people squirm, and I'm thinking in my head, like, if this isn't for real, don't pretend, because this is, like, the most magical situation that I could ever want, you know? And um, 
Yeah, he said, I'll try that one on, that's nice. He selected these three rings. Next thing I know, he's got down on one knee. The members of staff have got his mobile phone recording it. Um, and he proposed to me in the middle of Tiffany's on my 30th birthday. And the first thing he whispered to me was, no more violence. So I am then on the night flight back to England, about to have dinner with my family and friends for my 30th. Not only have I got to say I was lying, I went with him. I'm also back with him and we're engaged. And my family just crumbled, absolutely crumbled. And I said, he's going to get help. He's promised me no more violence. We're going to work through it, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were like, we can't. You know, I had this big party booked. I think out of 50 people that were supposed to come on that Saturday, there was about 14. People could just not, like, they could not believe after what he'd done that I'd gone back to him. They were just, friends just said, can't do this anymore with you. Like, you're on your own. My best friend said to me, every time the door knocks, I always worry that the police are going to be on the other side saying that my best friend's died. They could not emotionally deal with um, the roller coaster of emotions that came with being associated with me and the abuse that was going on in my life. They just couldn't deal with it. So it was just me and him. It was just me and him, and that's exactly what he wanted. Um, And he said, I've brought us a holiday home down in the south of England. And... It was beautiful. It was overlooking the ocean. Um, It was absolutely stunning. And he said, this is going to be, you know, our home. I'll come and see the one son that he did see um, twice a week. I'll come and see him twice a week. You can stay down here, work from here. This is your home. Um, And this is something he talked about in the past too when he said he wanted to buy another property for it to be our home together. And my friends were like, why is it so far away? And my best friend said, so they don't hear our screams. And but at the time I really wanted to believe that this place by the ocean was, you know, for us to make a new start. And anyway... I was spending more and more time down there um, and he was coming up on his own and when he used to leave, I used to think, I can have a breather now. (laughs) I'd read or I'd listen to music that I liked to listen to. I had to eat when he ate, sleep when he slept. He would deprive me of my sleep on a regular basis and I think emotionally that's how he got in. It was almost like a torture tactic that he used I'd be that exhausted by his huge it's like a seminar of abuse it would go on for hours and hours and hours till six in the morning well who's this person and when did you last talk to them what did you say about this and and it would just I'd be exhausted by it um so yeah November he'd said no violence and the proposal and then Christmas Eve we were down in the holiday home and we'd been to see um, the um, movie with Freddie Mercury. What's it called? You're good with movies. I Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Yeah. We'd been to see that and um, 
I came out and was like, oh, what did you think of the film? And he said, oh, you know, they've got the timeline wrong or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that's such a weird thing to say. Like, the film is incredible. Like, and that was it because I'd gone against his opinion on something. He, again, his face just changed. And we drove back to the holiday home. He left the car in neutral, got out of the driver's seat, and the car was driving back, um, rolling back. I've jumped, put the handbrake on. I can hear him smashing up our, you know, new home. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what? I've got no one down here. It is just me and him. I'm a four-hour drive away from where I live. And bearing in mind, I've just gone through all the rigmarole of telling my friends and family that, okay, they're not going to talk to me anymore, but this is the man that I love and I want to support him and da 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 da. Believed that there'd be no more violence. And um, yes, it was so, it was the day before Christmas Eve. And I walked into the home and I said, Why are you smashing the place up for? And he said, I'll show you smashing the place up. And he picked up a 42-inch TV and threw it at me. And I obviously put my arm up to block my face as I crouched on the floor. And, um, you know, I've still got a six-inch scar down my left arm from that. And he just dragged me about, there's nothing wrong with you, get off the floor. And then... He went and slept in the in the bed, and I slept on the sofa. He got up at four in the morning and was like, "We're going now." I was like, "I need to go to hospital." Like my arm was, I'd not slept. I was just absolutely distraught. I just thought, "Oh my god, what are my family and friends going to think?" I was supposed to see my family on Christmas Eve for dinner, and um, and I had to ring up in like my normalest, happiest, cheers voice, like, "Hi, Nan. Hi, Mom." I'm so sorry, I'm not going to be there for dinner today. They're like, why not? I was like, oh, I got a bit drunk last night and slipped on the stairs outside the caravan and I've really hurt my arm. I think it's broken. And my nan was like, you're joking. And now, like my family say, you know, that that's not our baby. You know, she doesn't act like that. She doesn't get drunk and, and fall over. There's already warning signs, but I didn't want to... I didn't want to ruin their Christmas, so I didn't want to tell them the truth as to what had happened. Um, so obviously now they know the truth. So that was that, and then we're back into this, back home. He's ignoring me. Um, you know, New Year was come and gone. I remember being down there and just him ignoring me and all the, you know, abuse that was going on and just standing at the edge of the cliff at midnight, like, alone, watching all the fireworks, hearing people cheering and listening to Old Lang Syne and just thinking, if I jump now, would that just would that just end my life immediately? And the, I think the only reason I didn't is because I can't swim. And I thought, what if I end up just being in the sea for hours and it'd be a long painful death but I just wanted everything to just just stop I just felt so alone I just had you know I didn't have him really and I'd, I'd lost all my family and friends to support him and I felt like I couldn't then continue telling them about the abuse that had got, was going on and continue to go 
it was continuing to go on after I'd promised them that he was changing. So we're coming to the end of the story now. So in March 2019, he'd booked for us to go on a cruise around New Zealand. And I really didn't want to go. I thought, oh, you know, it's three weeks. I can't escape. I'm on a cruise. Like, how how is this going to go? And at this point, I was just, I was a mute. I just did exactly what he said. I wore whatever he suggested. If I wasn't to wear makeup, I didn't wear makeup. If he wanted my hair cut short, I had my hair cut short. I wasn't even allowed to paint my nails. Do not do anything that's going to draw attention to us. That was his 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 frame of mind constantly, his attitude. Loose lips sink ships. He used to make that comment to me all the time. In other words, don't draw attention to us and don't tell anyone anything. And that is exactly how I was. I remained from um, the TV incident up until March. Now, on this cruise, he would just watch the boat around New Zealand and do his own thing and would make it very clear that there were days that he just didn't want to be around me. So I would just read my book by the pool and not get off the boat. And I'd become really good friends with this lovely Australian family and they were brothers and sisters and their partners there were six all together and they were all in like their mid 60s early 70s and they were such a lovely group of people and um you know they didn't want to pry they could see that I was always on my own but they knew I was there with another man I never ever you know told anyone my business I didn't make anything obvious but, you know, I'd go to the toilet of an evening and they would see him waiting outside the toilet and pacing, like, where is she? What's she doing now? Why is she taking so long? So, obviously, alarm bells were ringing um, for them. Anyway, one evening, um, you know, around other people, he was fine. You know, and I'd say this all the time to people, that it's just because they're a good person to you it doesn't mean they're a good person at home. And... Um, <laughs> We were having a little laugh and joke. There was karaoke going on, or so I thought. And uh, I did a little song, and then a member of this family did a song. He's a gentleman in his 70s. And the next morning, there was a little note put under our doors that we'd made it to the final of The Voice of the Ocean. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I thought it was just a drunken karaoke, but it was this whole thing. And it really brought me and that family really close together because we had to have practices, which people were saying, like, where's your partner? And I said, oh, you know, you just he's all good. Like, this isn't really his thing. And I don't want him here because I'm too embarrassed anyway. Like, And he kept saying, if you... If I mean that much to you, you'll stop this. But I felt like, I mean, I'm, te- I'm terrified of being on stage or singing in public, but I felt like I really had the support of this family. And they were like, no, like, you've got just got to do this. Like, you know, I thought, oh, I need this. I need it for my own confidence. And I thought, no one's ever going to see me again on this boat. Like, I should just do it. And he obviously hated that because for once wasn't him in the limelight people would come over at lunch and say oh are you excited for you know the final in in two weeks and I'd be like oh I'm so nervous but I used to think oh please just stop asking me now because I would clearly see that he was hating every minute of this attention being on me now 
I'd got on really well with the entertainers and there's a couple of girls that were pianists and they were like, hey girl, like come and, come and practice with us. And they would take their time to like at the end of a night when everyone had gone, just go through my, my little song choice. They were really lovely, lovely girls. And um, it was the last night of the cruise and he had just, you know, disappeared as he usually did. And... Um, I thought I'll just say goodbye to my Australian friends and the bar staff and just thank them for, you know, just being so lovely. Um, And I did. I went up and said goodbye and I went back to the room and I noticed that my card for the cabin wasn't working. So I just gently knocked and I tried it again. It wasn't working. And all of a sudden, I've heard him bounding towards the door and he swung it open and just grabbed me by the throat and threw me to the floor. And um, that that was it. You know, I mean, I I can't get away from him now. I'm on a a cruise. We're due to disembark tomorrow. We still had a week in Australia. I ran out the door and I just ran back to exactly where I was, um, you know, 20 minutes prior with the same people. The Australian family had already gone to bed, um, but the members of staff were there. And I remember the pianist running up to me in tears. She was like, I knew, I knew from that moment he stood over that piano and told you enough. You come into bed a few days prior she said, I knew that this was a really toxic and abusive relationship for you, but I couldn't, I didn't know how to approach it. I just hoped that, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought and maybe he was drunk that night. Um, her partner was on the boat as a security manager um, who she called and they put me onto into a different cabin on my own. Now, he'd actually gone to the effort of changing the names outside the cabin doors so to trick the security, I suppose, and not being able to find him. He'd changed the pin on the, um, on the safe, which is where my cards, money and passport was. All my clothes and everything were downstairs because you put your, um, your suitcases outside your door the night before you disembark um, and they take them down to like the belly of the boat. So I just had an overnight nighty and the dress that I was wearing, which it strangled me with. So I'm sat in this cabin and the security manager was incredible and said, you know what, how can we help you? Like, when is your flight home? I said, I've got, I've not got a flight home, and for another week we were due to get on this train um, journey for three days through Australia. Um, and they were like, "We're going to cut. We're going to make a statement." And I don't know how they deal with things like this in the UK, but we're very strict here, and we take these matters very seriously. And you're going to need to write a statement for this particular um, cruise liner, which I did, and they said. At five o'clock, we're going to give you a call and we're going to, I'm going to ask you the question now, but I'm not going to ask you again when we call. I just want the answer. And the question is, do you want us to have the Australian Federal Police waiting for him when we dock at Sydney Port in a couple of hours? 
She said, so when I call you tomorrow, I'm just going to say yes or no. And I said no, because I thought, I've not got any documents. I don't know where I'm going to go. I've got no clothes. I'm the other side of the world. How am I going to get back from Australia? Like, what am I going to do? The last thing I wanted to do was, you know, agitate the bear even more, if you like. I just thought I'm just going to have to wait for him to find me. I just didn't know what to do. Now, the pianist had seen the Australian family at breakfast, so we were ready to get off the boat in, like, two hours. I think they were ready to start at 7 a.m. During this time, I can hear his name being called out on the tannoy and security is saying, you know, they are up and down this this cruise liner. They are They are trying to find him, and they can't find him anywhere. The boat's now docked. People are going to be disembarking in a couple of hours. <clears throat> Finally find him. And I get a knock at the door, and it's security, and they call my name, and um, they've got the six Australian friends that I'd made with them. And um, (laughs) they took one look at each of that and looked at me and said, this is the first day of your new life. You're coming home with us. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. And um, I just felt like they just, these people just come and save me. And I think because they were a little bit older and very, you know, the women were very maternal. The, the male figures in the family were just incredible. They were like my granddad. <clears throat> and um, I did. I... They went with security to the room and uh, security just stood in front of him while they helped this family get my um, things out of the safe, my my passport. And I did. I got in the minibus. They they had to literally carry me off that boat. My legs were like jelly. I could not believe that I had agreed to let this Australian family take me home with them. And um, I stayed with them for a week and we were trying to change my flight to leave from Sydney to London rather than Perth to London, but we couldn't do it. Um, The cost and everything that was involved, it was just too difficult. There was no space. And so a week later, I had to get on the the plane um, back to the UK and he was sat behind me the whole way, kicking my chair. And I was still visibly bruised at this point too. And I remember he kicked my chair so hard that my water fell into my lunch. And I just got up and I said, please, like, enough, enough. And this woman um, started to clap. And, like, I seemed to say, like, good for you. Like, I can see what this bloody man's doing this whole trip. Humming and banging my chair, not allowing me to rest or eat my dinner. And when he finally fell asleep, one of the air hostesses came up to me and said, you know, you can obviously see, and we've been told that there's a bit of an issue here. When you're ready, could you just come and see the, um, like, air hostess manager? So I did. After about 15 minutes, I went to the back of the plane and discussed it with them, and they said, like, are you okay? Um, You know, again, we can get the police waiting for this person um, as soon as we land in London. Uh, and I was like, no, 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 like, I, I just need to, to get away. 
Um, so yeah, April Fool's Day, April the first, two years ago, just over two years ago, um, was the last time I saw him, and I remember seeing him get his suitcase off the um, off the um, conveyor belt, and looked at him and got in a taxi, got back to where I lived. Moved into a women's shelter for four months and um, it was just, yeah, it was a very, uh, very horrible time. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a safe place in this women's shelter, I think, because it was single women only and not like parent and child, mother and child. There was a lot of like drug abuse and prostitution. Um, It wasn't a manned building. So there was a lot of strangers and strange men coming in and out of the house all the time, all different hours of the day. And I would hear stones being thrown at my window, but they were trying to get the lady downstairs. And I just bought myself a kettle in my room. So I didn't want to use the communal kitchen because I was too frightened of these other people that were coming in and out of the house. So I just lived off, you know, porridge and noodles and anything I could make using this kettle. So... Obviously, my health was terrible and I was full of anxiety and just terrified. And um, I was, we were always being encouraged to, to do activities and stuff in the women's shelter. And no one ever wanted to because they were depressed and, you know, maybe addicted to something. And But there was one that I saw that I really fancied and it was um, like to learn the basics of a sewing machine. Um, and I just remember going for like these five hours and making this little tote bag. I just remember feeling so calm and like, well, you know, all my stress of that, it just went away just because I was just concentrating on something other than what was actually going on. And about a month later, I had an email from him and it was a short video. I'd sold my car as well and I'd gotten a really discreet little cheap runaround in replacement of my other one and um it was a video of somebody recording out of a car window up the street that the women's shelter was on and um zooming into my new number plate so I knew that he knew exactly where I was and this Australian family that I'd kept in touch with um so I call her Mozzie because she's my Aussie mum. She just said, come back. I'd just sell everything, sell your car. I mean, I didn't have much. I didn't have property or, you know, but I had my little car. I got a few grand for that. Um, Any clothes, anything. And I did. Um, So four months after leaving them on that cruise, I made the permanent move to Australia and... um, Applied for a protection visa um, and started my charity over here, which, um, you know, I'm very proud of. And it helps victims of domestic violence. About six months ago, I had an email through my website. I don't use my real name um, over here, especially not my surname. Um, but I had, and there's nothing on my website um, that says who I am or where I'm from or my story. And I had an email, and as soon as I saw the name, I knew exactly who it was and what it was going to be about. And it was 
Remember I told you about Pam, who used to work at the same place as me with him? Mm-hmm. It was her, and she said, please, can I um, give her a call? And I said to Mozzie, I'm going to need to record this on your phone, if that's okay, but I need to give this lady a call. And she spent the next three hours on the phone telling me everything that I thought I knew. Um, back then, they confirmed everything. And she, until this day, still has contact with me. She is still trying to escape this man. He's been physically violent to her. She's got, you know, two older sons that she can't just get up and leave. And obviously, with the COVID restrictions, um, she's in exactly the same place with this man that I was in. And... You know, she's been in his life a lot longer. The relationship, he actually had a house with her behind the house that I was in with him. Now I've found out, and that's why he used to lock me in the house. And it was her blonde hairs that would be popping into that house, not knowing that, you know, he'd say, oh, I've split up with her and back and forth. And, um, yeah, his ex-wife of the two children was relocated um, through an organisation called Women's Aid that we have in the UK because of the abuse that she endured and the children um, witnessed. So this charity that he has, as you were absolutely correct in what you said earlier, this was all to cover his back for the abuse that he's not only done to her but to the children, um, to me, and now to his present partner who is, you know, she's a, she's more his age than, than, than me, so she's in her late 40s now. And... I've got an incredible partner now. Like, he's the most wonderful man. Um, And he's really, you know, he says to me, it's only now that you've stopped shaking in your sleep. I was diagnosed with PTSD um, about three months after coming to Australia, um, which is when the hard work starts, by the way. People think you leave an abuser and the Band-Aid is ripped off and you're healed. It's not. It's your your emotional... um, well-being your your soul is just absolutely shattered and that is when the real hard work starts um so when this lady contacts me now my partner's like man like you've got to think of yourself you've come too far and and she says um I said how did you know about the charity and uh she said he's had somebody following you in Australia for the last three months so it's he doesn't want me back. It's all about control. It's all about spooking me. And I think now, looking back, had I have listened to my friends and family saying, just give it six months, see if you still speak to this Australian family, you know, I'd still be in England now, in lockdown, as they have been for on and off for the last 12 months, stuck in that women's shelter, him knowing exactly where I was every minute of the day. I can't even imagine even being on this earth having that hanging over my head I really can't I think if he hadn't done something I probably would have done something to myself because it was just no it was no way to live and now I have got this life in Australia where it is just blooming with love support respect you know being able to help all victims of domestic violence you know I don't we know the statistics we know about the female victims but I think there's a lot of males that are a victim of abuse that don't come forward because of this whole stigma that's attached so I proudly cater 
to all victims of domestic violence with the organisation that I run and I hope that I hope that this story just this has got what I'm doing now in this country has got just as much to do with the family that saved me off that boat and gave me a chance as it has my hard work you know these are people that I'd already said my goodbyes to them that night. They could have got off the boat and said, look, this isn't really anything to do with us. She's a lovely girl, but we've swapped numbers. We're going home. This isn't any of our business, but they didn't. They took a just as much huge leap of faith and trusted me into their homes with their grandchildren and children as I did getting off that boat without him that day. And I think that's the message that I want to try and express to people that don't be on mute when you see something going on like that it took me three years and I know that's not a long time compared to some of the callers that you you have on this show but it it felt like 30 I feel like it aged me 30 years there is so much of me that I feel like will never be mended it wasn't a broken heart it was a broken soul and what that man did and what he continues to do. And it's not as easy as just going to the police. It's not as easy as ringing up, you know, a charity helpline for help when you've got things like software on your phone. You know, this is a predator that is continuing to walk the streets and prey on vulnerable women. Um, And I think that's the most frightening thing. So, yeah, um... That's where I am now, and that's my story. Well, Tabitha, I really want to thank you for telling your story today. You did an excellent job from beginning to end. I know how difficult it is to tell a story like this and, you know, relive moments which are very difficult to relive. A lot of the time people can't do that, and you've done it today for the benefit of others. Um, and I just really want to thank you for being here and sharing your story. Thank you. I appreciate you giving me the time. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And do you have any last words before we uh, leave today? Yeah, I think, you know, just to say to people that, as I said earlier, it, it really, the hard work really does start when, when you leave that person, the whole trauma bond that, you know, happens and, it's um please don't ever say to someone you know why didn't you just leave it's not you can't just leave you know I was fortunate enough that I didn't have children I didn't have property um you know mortgage with this guy but there's so many other things that people have to take into consideration and why why should it be the victim that has to leave and start up you know one of the conditions of my um of my protection visa is that I can't actually return to my own country for five years and see my family and friends. Um, so again, it's almost like the victim ends up having to deal with, you know, the, I know that I'm in this beautiful country now and I've got a great life, but why is he able to just walk into this country at any time, but I can't return home. Um, so I think just as soon as you feel that something isn't right, as soon as you start Googling someone's behaviours, that should be one of the biggest red flags. Um, Just trust your gut. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's usually a duck. 
it doesn't feel right because it, it's because it isn't and just get out because it's so much harder to get out of it once you're really heavily involved and one more thing I, I want to add when it comes to uh, domestic violence, domestic abuse, intimate partner violence, uh, for the people who are listening to the show who are friends of other people, uh, and that is, you know, when it comes to certain situations like this and you think that the best thing to do is to, you know, not talk to the person anymore because they went back to relationship, you, you should always, as a friend, even if they go back to the relationship you know, be supportive of that decision. You make sure that the person isn't too afraid to come back and has someone to reach out to. Um, and I think it's very important for people to know that, you know, in these situations, you know, that it doesn't further isolate your friend if your friend is going through this, to know that they always have uh, an outlet to go to and that they shouldn't have a I told you so type of reaction. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, it's just, um, anyway, that, that's kind of what I wanted to say to everyone there. Um, and, uh, you know, once again, thank you for, for being here, um, being part of the show. And um, a lot of people are going to learn from uh, your story and are going to feel a lot less alone. And also, oh, one last thing. Uh, you mentioned Women's Aid. On our website, we have, uh, if you are looking for the numbers of Women's Aid, because we don't really um, talk about international stuff as much, but Women's Aid is in Ireland, uh, Scotland. It's in Wales, uh, Women's Aid, uh, England. So there are a lot of Women's Aid for every UK country out there. If you're uh, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, in those areas, uh, reach out to Women's Aid. So uh, thank you for mentioning that as well. And uh, that's it. So thank you for, on behalf of me and Tabitha, I hope everyone has a good night.